A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online. And built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six oh, days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them all. What you doing down here, you shawny man? <laughs> All right, sports fans, you put in a hell of a shift there over the weekend, and we applaud you for that. There was so much going on. The Shawnee O'Shea free for Kerry. Ireland beating New Zealand for the first time in New Zealand. Novak Djokovic beating his new best pal, Nick Kyrgios, in the Wimbledon final. That's Damien Comer. Damien Comer. Damien Comer. Damien Comer show. Yeah, yeah, for Galway. Yeah, they got to get that one in there. Uh, It was a busy one, put it that way. And you probably deserve a lie down at this point, but make it quick. Because this sporting summer is not stopping for anybody. Tonight, Euro 2022, 2020, 2022, Euro 2022, <laughs> two of the favourites of the tournament, England versus Norway, eight o'clock kickoff. Miguel Delaney is on his way to Brighton for that. And he's going to have a chat with us before he heads off. How are you, by the way, Kieran? Hope you're well. Uh, I'm good on. I'm good on. And congratulations on attempting to say Euro 2022 tournament all in the space of two <laughs> seconds there. That was, um, was just part of your bravery. Welcome everyone to Monday's Second Captain's Football Podcast. We're also going to be talking to Miguel about the rebuilding job Chelsea are doing under their new ownership. They've, they're making a few moves now. They've agreed to sign Raheem Sterling for around £50 million. That fee has been agreed with Man City. They look looks like they're going to buy Nathan Aki from City as well at time of recording. Anyway, that seems to be the, the latest. They've been trying to gazump. And yes, I like using that word mm-hmm. in transfer window territory because <laughs> yeah. Man United it's not one I generally use in conversation over no. the Frankie de Jong transfer is it too soon to discount Chelsea as possible title winners this coming season this time last year everybody was tipping them and I'm not sure anybody will be this time around <laughs> given everything that's gone on there uh, but also how, how strong the top two look, but we'll see. Yeah, it's uh, we'll been a year what for Chelsea hasn't mm. it? You know, That's in the, uh, the parlance of the time it's been a year uh, considering Roman Abramovich was the owner of the club this time last year. I should also mention for our Northern Ireland listeners, their game against Austria is first up today at the Euros at five o'clock. I'm not forgetting about. Uh, about don't you guys. sleep on Northern Ireland. On I'm, I'm poor form. I'm just warning you form. here. Don't sleep <laughs> yeah. on those guys. No, it was poor form from the whoever's in charge of the PA system at Northern Ireland's opening game against Norway. I don't know if you if you noticed what they were playing after no. the goals were going in. After Nor- and now, fairness, Northern Ireland got their goal and I believe the tune was also played after their goal. It had its rightful place after a Northern mm-hmm. Ireland goal. But even after Norway were scoring, Freed from Desire was being banged no, out. No, As in, no, you know, no, no. Northern- Will, Will Griggs, Griggs on, on fire. fire. I mean, that's... Exactly. 
it's almost like a troll. It's the, it's the it's their famous. Yeah, it's their tune, and it was being played as the goals were going in against them. I mean, I think it's literally the answer to the vexed, you know, Northern Irish national anthem question. You know, should it be God Save the Queen? Should it be Danny Boy? Uh, you know, I think we can all agree that that's a stone cold banger. It is not only the women's Euros where you can get your football hits these days. I'm sure people are searching far and wide, and many might have come across a clip from the Canadian Premier League this weekend: Valor FC against HFX Wanderers. Mm. This is the big one, of course. Valor looked to have taken the lead in the 17th minute. Alessandro Rigi bundling the ball home. Where has he bundled it home? Suddenly his teammate William Accio appears on the scene. Nicely for him. Tracks it down, opens up to his right boot. The cross towards Rigi. Second effort, it dribbles in. No! Did Accio clear that off the line himself? What in the world? All right, so what's happened there is Rigi has bundled the ball towards the goal, as in he's practically on the goal line himself when he's mm. kicking the ball. It is just about three quarters away over the line when in out of nowhere comes his teammate Akio to, well, what was he trying to do? The commentators suggest that he was trying to make sure the ball went over the line. I feel he was probably just trying to get the goal for himself. Yeah, I do. I have seen another explanation that he celebr- it was he was actually celebrating the goal. <laughs> you know, it was one of those I'm going to blast it into the net now. And yeah. somebody has a somebody actually has a uh, who is it? Somebody on, on Twitter puts together a feed of these things, basically moments when players try to celebrate kicking the ball into the net oh, right. after a goal, but miss. <laughs> so this could fit in there, but I don't think so. I think he was trying to to score the goal himself, and yeah, just didn't quite happen for him. It was bad. It was I mean, bad. I I don't know, I don't know what other reason you can give for it. I mean, it actually reminded me of uh, a moment from my own Gaelic football career, a particularly ill-starred moment, I must say. Uh, when I was a young footballer, uh, living in Galway, being picked up for like a junior game, like a junior A game on a Sunday morning. And I remember waiting at Galway Cathedral to be picked up by one of my teammates and feeling so incredibly hungover that I felt mm-hmm. not alone was the game out of my out of my reach, but literally the car journey for 20 minutes to Headford was going to kill me, literally kill me stone dead. And I do remember at one stage that I was like very carefully shepherding the ball out of play over the end line and before realising wait a second that ball was in play I could have just picked it up and mm. fisted a point like really easily there but I was like like full on like with my with my arse out, does it look like, like a kind of bent over backwards but so, make sure that, but so were you securing your team uh, 45 yeah but I mean I could have just picked up the ball and fisted the ball over the bar I mean this is junior A football if you've someone able to kick a 45 he's probably on the senior team on um, <laughs> so there was absolutely no doubt in the world it was probably me going out there to kick a ball to kick a 45 about 30 yards up in the air uh, so yeah I mean I, I don't know I, I can't speak to the young man's uh, pre-match preparation uh, that was my excuse I don't know what this guy's excuse was well truly only William Akio knows what was going through his head <laughs> as he denied his team and his teammate he was t- I'd love to tell you that it ended up in glory for Akio that he ended up winning the game for his team they did win 1-0 but he was not the goal scorer okay. he was subbed off well, at least they at won a later point. that was yeah. important that does make a bit of a difference as yeah. to how everyone's feeling about this it's time to talk to Miguel I accept your challenge I call out Ricky Rourke and Steve Nash here we go stop it that's one of those things stop it Players can do this. Duffman can never die. 34 years old. Oh! 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 Oh!
Only the actors who play him. No, he did. No, he did. Do you think Robbie Keane just said, you know what? Any questions about me being the MVP of this league? I think he just said right there. Oh yeah. He's got more of a tan than me. This time last year, Chelsea were reigning European champions and it felt like everybody was tipping them for the Premier League title. A lot uh, obviously went pear-shaped for them in more ways than one last season. Lots happened, as they say, in the last 12 months. So how are they looking now this summer going into their first full season in the post-Abramovich Chelsea world? Miguel Delaney is on to tell us. Hey, Miguel. Hey, guys. Hope you're enjoying your summer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, I suppose, given it was basically continuous football from... I think June 2020 to June uh, 2022, it actually felt like the last few weeks were the first kind of little break we have for those of us kind of on the, on the Premier League, Champions League, mm. international uh, hamster wheel. <laughs> um, but I've been, I've been back into it this week with the Women's Euros. But yeah, so it, it, did, it did feel like, I think, it just a, a continuous knock-on effect from, I suppose, the pandemic, obviously, and the crunch ahead of the 2022 World Cup where I think even player, I mean, it was something that came up in, during the discussions about the Nations League a few weeks ago, of course, but I think even players found it the most intense period of football they've ever had. So suddenly, after that, um, yeah, a bit, bit more sedate. Well, it could have been even busier for you, Miguel. I mean, there would have been, there could, we'd be talking about a World Cup final this week, wouldn't we? It's what are we at, July, July 11th, normally. Yeah, I mean, and, and it, it, so I've, actually, I've, I've thought that a, a bit, a lot lately, in terms of kind of how... I mean, obviously, there's so much wrong with this Qatar World Cup, but it actually it um, it, it almost suited those organising the football calendar to have it suddenly six months on. Because imagine how they actually had had to crunch in the two seasons post COVID and then try and get this World Cup on. But but even even allowing for that, and uh, again, I mean, this is one of the more minor negatives of what what like what is a World Cup with some really seriously grave problems. Um, but uh, I was reading Ollie Holt's interview with Zico two weeks ago, which was brilliant about the 1982 World Cup, and it was one of those occasions when I just found myself thinking, "Oh, it would be we'd be right in the middle of the tournament now, you know. This this is this is something else. This World Cup has taken away, where it's denied us that kind of glory of summer football. And even like I was I was around. Um, uh, yesterday was obviously Wimbledon final day and it was kind of around London on a day off and we went up to Granary Square where they had a, a massive screen up showing the final and it was absolutely packed. People were even on the uh, on little kind of boats in the canal watching it. And of course that would, for a Summer World Cup, that would be a perfect setting to show a game and you could, and, and given what a World Cup is, they could be showing games there all the time. But, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, an, it's another one of the little things, obviously, again, pales in comparison next to the big problems this World Cup but like it, it's going to be an interesting one, given you, you, usually so we associate a lot of World Cup with a lot of kind of you know outside watching football, which isn't really possible uh, in England or Ireland in November and December. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was just something else that struck me yesterday, and, and yeah, it's 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 almost it, it's that rite of passage really about what a World Cup is about, isn't it? It's, it's it's summer football and just dominating everything. Yeah, well, it leaves the way clear for the, the Women's World Cup and there'll be plenty gathering in those kind of places, I would say, Miguel. If today's game, tonight's game goes well, we, we can come back to Chelsea, but you mentioned uh, England, they're playing Norway this evening and this is, in many ways, the big game of the group group phase, certainly the big game in this group. Are you looking forward to it? Yeah, um, and certainly it feels like it's England's one 
really big game with the group stages. I mean, it'll probably decide whether whether they're first or second, and then whether they get to play in London or not for the quarter final, potentially setting that path. Um, it has felt like it's all building up to this so far. I was at the game on Wednesday, which was a capacity crowd at Old Trafford. Everything was really, really good about it, bar the weather. I'd, I'd come up from 30 degrees in London almost mm. to sideways lashing rain in Manchester. Uh, but it, it, it was still a, a great atmosphere around it. Uh, it does feel like the uh, England uh, the kind of population has actually quite taken to the national team. Obviously, the rest of the tournament's been a little bit of a matter of debate, especially where some of the some of the games are at and some of the stadiums being used. But that's why it's almost a little bit odd tonight. So, like, I'm going down to Brighton for this game. Brighton, you know, great setup down there, nice stadium, but it's what it's, it's around thirty thousand. Whereas every England game at the moment in a tournament that's otherwise where crowds have been such a debate, they, they could easily be getting 60,000 for every single game. So it is remarkable. Yeah, every, single, every single England game, yeah. It, yeah, every single England game, yeah. So it, it, it does feel like a little bit of a wasted opportunity to have it in, in, in some of their smaller stadiums. Because the Friday game against Northern Ireland is in, um, is in Southampton as well, which is the same sort of issue. And then if they get through, actually, I think the, quarter, the quarterfinal they'll be in, it'll be in either... Uh, Brighton, if they finish first, and if they finish second, which of course, and tonight's game will dictate that, uh, it'll be in Brentford, which is which is a really small stadium. But, but I mean, the idea I, I think is, is to spread uh, you spread it around, you know, grow the grow the interest around the country, give people a chance to watch. Which you could argue maybe should be done more for for men's teams as well when the tournament is at home. But uh, you think it would make more sense to give the maximum amount of people the chance to see them, even if that meant being in London or or maybe maybe Old Trafford the whole time. Yeah, I mean, they, they've picked the stadiums, obviously, because, I mean, because they made realistic assessments of the potential numbers. But sometimes it feels like they've, they've zoomed out too much there. I mean, it's, it's, one, of those, it's one of those cases as well where, same with men's tournaments, and let's not forget, actually, Euro 96 often, uh, often didn't have, I mean, it was a great, I mean, watching footage of that great game between Croatia and Denmark, where Sucre was amazing recently, and the crowd actually is pretty poor at it, uh, which is amazing to think now. But as we like, what they do with all these tournaments is because they have to have the logistics so um, in place so so far in advance. Is you know they 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 pick the stadium so far out. Every every game is assigned a stadium, and then basically it's just a case of slotting the draws into those into those games. Where this is a case, and because of the evolving nature of um, of the women's Euros, where where even even Wednesday's game was a record. It, it, it felt like they could have done with a more pragmatic pragmatic attitude and actually picked some of the stadiums to be used after the games have been in place because it does feel ridiculous to have some of the absolute biggest games in some of the smaller stadiums. Yeah. Uh, and, and that does feel a wasted opportunity. I mean, the other side of this, of course, is with, with, with this tournament, and obviously, I suppose, because the nature of my job and how ultimately, how completely domineering the top level of, of, of the men's game is, just, I mean how all-consuming the Premier League and Champions League are. I don't, I don't do that, uh, that much women's football, but I, ha- I have been kind of finding myself thinking, I mean, as part of the evolution of women's football itself, it's also good that we, we should be actually discussing what the tournament is. And I, I, you try not to get too bogged down in all the wider discussions about its place and its status, because what we're actually seeing, of course, is quite a good and quite a really healthily competitive tournament here, with tonight's game being a pretty clear example of that. Uh, because it is, it is probably given England have beaten Austria, given Northern Ireland are you know it's their it's their first tournament here. They're uh, you know an evolving team themselves. This is pretty much a shootout for top spot tonight. 
Uh, and yeah, it, with, it, with, it with top be. players on both teams. Like we, we talked a bit about Norway on, on Friday's podcast, but Ada Hegerberg's back after uh, being in self-imposed exile. Why am I writing a tabloid newspaper headline there? <laughs> she didn't want to play for the team for a number of years because she felt they weren't being treated fairly by the uh, association. That that seems to be sorted. Now she, she's back. She played well the other day. Caroline Graham Hansen. They've got a bunch of amazing forwards, Norway. So they're they're great to watch. This is, this is the game if people, uh, you know, this, this is one of the big games of the group stage for people to get into. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, as you mentioned, I mean, Nor- Norway's array of attacking England. So, I mean, it's one of those games basically where both sides have not just high caliber of attackers, but a really good array of different styles of attackers that, that should make the game, like, it should give it a real spark. The, the one thing that's been a, a slight criticism of England to win that, and one of the minor issues with uh, someone who's obviously a really accomplished coach in Weigman, is basically that for all England's creativity in terms of like the, Kirby in particular, which I thought was absolutely brilliant. On Wednesday, but there have been issues about her fitness levels and how, whether she can last more than an hour. Stanway as well is that they resort a little bit too often to kind of to sending it to me, and it was something really noticeable even in the Austria game. The amount of times they just they they get it wide and, and swing it in, and it was Kirby only that really offered any sort of real variation within that with with, with the two amazing passes, and I mean given how Norway play. I mean, I suppose the hope is maybe a bit more variation with England, but also maybe England as well. It's, I mean, it's one of those classic cases of, of tournament football where the opening game, they were, they were okay. They got the win, which is all that matters. But I think it did feel like the extent of the build-up to this tournament did have an effect. There was a, there was a few nerves in show, particularly in the last 10 minutes. And they kinda, they'll, they'll want to kick on for that and offer a bit more. But of course, most of all, uh, they'll want to win um, and I suppose uh, keep up the momentum that does feel like it's gathering around this team at the moment. What about Chelsea then, Miguel? What have you made of the rebuilding job that they're doing this summer under the new ownership? Well, I think there's an acceptance right now that... I've been speaking to a lot of people over this the last uh, two weeks and I'm, I'm doing a big piece on it this week. Uh, just, I suppose, the, the changeover at Chelsea. And they've got pretty clearly defined plans... Um, the new the Bowley ownership and and Clear Lake, um, and for, like, from from the way I've been speaking to people, one of the views is they actually believe that for all Chelsea's success over the last fifteen years, and uh, I suppose the amount of money that Abramovich spent in pursuit of that success, you know, money of course that has uh, a very different context now. Uh, but there was almost a view that Chelsea actually didn't maximise what they were, which is one of the most famous and upwardly mobile clubs in London. Uh, I think the current group, they want to put in a completely different recruitment model, which, we, which is something much more like what Liverpool do. I, I, just from speaking to people, not just in the club, but even outside, there's, there's almost a belief that recruitment in football, actually, it, it, there are huge opportunities within the Premier League themselves because of how so many clubs are run. And that Liverpool, which is obviously analytics-based, but building into what Klopp specifically wants, are one of the few clubs that optimise everything they do. And Chelsea wants to pursue a similar model to that. And, and one of the um, consequences of that, and it's something relevant to what you said at the top about where they were last summer and why they never kicked on, is to basically bring in Thomas Tuchel much more. Because, I mean, the, the way it had worked previously with Chelsea, and the, and the way it pretty worked, worked with every Chelsea manager was, they had a list of targets. Tuchel was given some say in kind of circular discussions, or the manager was given some say. But ultimately, to, to a greater degree, they had um, signings imposed upon them. 
Whereas, it's amazing when this is spelled out so clearly how obvious it seems, but this is the way football is. Say, say at Liverpool, what's actually happened is basically Klopp goes to their transfer committee or whatever description they're using these days, says what positions he wants and, and more specifically, what type of qualities he wants for those positions. The recruitment team then go off, find a series of names, bring them to Klopp. If he doesn't like them, they go back again. Um, I mean, Klopp is obviously willing to dialogue, but it's much more. I suppose, it's a, it's a situation where the manager is much more integrated, and it's much more kind of. It, I suppose it's 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 quite an independent process in that way. And Chelsea want to do much more on that, or m- much more along those lines. And I suppose one of the knock-ons to that is we won't have a situation again where Tuchel has a player he doesn't especially. Hang on, what about Ronaldo? I'm sorry to cut across. This has been been in the back of my mind throughout your entire answer here. This all sounds great, and I think some of the signings they look like they're making are are really smart, like Raheem Sterling. But, I mean, Ronaldo is literally the antithesis of everything you're talking about there. Well, I was going to come to this. So, Tuchel basically never really liked Lukaku. Or not that he never really liked him, he just didn't really see him as a fit for his type of football. And that became an issue as the season went on. And he's obviously made this clear to the new hierarchy. It was a source of tension between himself and the old Chelsea hierarchy, uh, who are pretty much all, all gone now in the, in the summer's changes. Marina Granovskaya and Czech are, are both leaving. Um, but it also means that, to be honest, I, they, haven't complete, they haven't given a completely concrete decision yet, but I'd be very surprised if they sign Ronaldo, just for all these reasons. Now, the, the one thing that's always considered with Ronaldo in this regard, I wrote, I wrote this last week in a, in a piece, and I mean, even an update on Friday about the situation is, I mean, just because it's... Mendes is obviously going to clubs and if you are presented with a chance to sign Ronaldo for almost nothing and you're a new ownership people will listen but Chelsea's stance is they want to give Tuchel the decision Tuchel from what I've heard it's it, I mean this is ultimately the issue with Ronaldo at this stage of his career even even if you go into the back and forth as, as you have so so much in the podcast about whether he's you know whether it's of net benefit to a team or a net cost so many people in football, even like right up to the most elite, idealistic coaches, they'll see Ronaldo and go, well, there is 20 goals there. Maybe, just maybe, I can latch him into my system. And while, while, we're, deve- while we're trying to put other plans in place, he can give us those goals to, to, um, to, to bail us out for the time being. That's ultimately what everyone thinks. And it's in, even, I, I, was ta- I had a reference to this in, um, in a piece I did about Ronaldo during the week, that even in situations, like I was just talking to someone who worked with him at Juventus, and even in situations where they know that Ronaldo's an issue, they've been frustrated with how he is. Like, there's, so, there's so many stories when he was at Juventus, when, when Sarri was trying to put in, like obviously do lots of shape work, and, and Sarri's football, because it requires integration and players kind of to play off almost instinct with each other from so much repetition, he needs basically to be working with 11 players on the pitch all, all the time. But Ronaldo, he, had to, he couldn't do that. He had to compromise basically working with 10 while Ronaldo went to, almost went off and did his own exercises because it was just pointless. He just wouldn't get involved. or He, he, he was just useless to those shape sessions. The stories of him basically in the middle. You know, Sarri, and I, and I believe this was an issue with Rangnick as well, Sarri would be trying to impose some sort of system that would deepen the players, you know, basically make them better players. And, you know, you'd have Ronaldo kicking balls away saying, this is shit. Um, but, but, but even despite... Despite all of that, afterwards one of the coaches put them. Would you? Well, would you? Um, would, would you still be willing to work with Ronaldo? And the answer was, 
we'll have to sit down and have a discussion with him. So that's ultimately, and this is all we've got to come down to. All that said, I I would be surprised if Tuchel goes for it. I think from from speaking to people at the end of last week, uh, it seems Tuchel is of a mind to not do it. The other side of that, of course, is that while United, when some reports came out on Thursday that United would be privately open to a sale, uh, the club were quite proactive in just uh, repeating the stance, he's absolutely not for sale. Um, And while you can kind of, I mean, that, even that, might, as strong as their stance was, even that, I suppose, comes down to a matter of interpretation and all these things because it's, it's all a bit of a power play, especially as they're about to, about to go on a, on a tour to Thailand, which he wasn't going to go on, but they have accepted his, um, his private family reason uh, for not going. And from what I've told, there is a genuine issue that hasn't been, that hasn't been mentioned out of privacy, obviously. But even if, even if you think that United might actually be willing to sell, I'm still not sure they'd be willing to sell to another English club, especially one that are pretty much a direct rival in Chelsea, just because of all the potential knock-on effects. Um, oh, I'd say that, it, pff, I don't know. I think it'd be, like, if everyone's as confident as we seem to be, that Ronaldo is not... Like, You're Chelsea injecting the be... poison directly into an opponent's dressing room. <laughs> That's the way to yeah. phrase it, Murph. That's probably the way to phrase it. There's no way Tuchel is signing Chelsea. He's literally seen what has happened with Lukaku. He couldn't do that trick with Lukaku of getting him into the system. And Lukaku, I would have thought, would be a, a, a player be a bit more willing to, you know, he's not quite on the Ronaldo level of superstar. He's a lot younger as well. And it didn't work. I, I, I don't want to spend the whole, we did spend most of Monday's podcast talk, last Monday's talking about Ronaldo. I we probably shouldn't go down all the way down that road today. But Murph, I think Murph's point sums it up. Murph, I know you wanted to ask about Sterling. I think that's I think Sterling for around fifty million is pretty good. Yeah, all the stuff that you've been been saying there, Miguel. I mean, Raheem Sterling very much does fit the bill, and it's you know under fifty million pounds for a twenty-seven-year-old who you know. I mean, I I kind of raise my eyes to heaven when I hear that. You know, can he adapt to the Premier League? Raheem Sterling has played in the Premier League for ten years. And he's a very, very good Premier League player. For under £50 million, that seems like a very nice bit of business to me. Yeah, I agree. I I mean, the only reason anyone could could think it anyway high, I suppose, is because um, he only has a year left on his contract. But, I mean, even if it came down to that, we're still talking about £40 I I think you're completely right. When when you stand back, we're talking about a really proven Premier League attacker and goal scorer who's... Basically approaching the prime years of his career, still just the right side of it because he's twenty-seven. Um, probably, probably has at least three or four years left. Yeah, I think it's a really good signing. Gives Chelsea something different as well in an attack that had become. I mean, yeah, again related to some of those issues with Lukaku. It's 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 the one area of Tuchel's team that has never completely clicked. And Sterling, I think one of, one of the big reasons they've been specifically interested in Sterling is because of um, uh, the fluidity he gives the team. And it's an interesting one in that regard as well, because one of the other points he's going to make about Chelsea and that is um, it, uh, Sterling is a no-brainer signing in a situation where Chelsea are, I, I, or I mean, whatever about their plans, they're still trying to work out how they, get, how they conduct the market and how they conduct their recruitment in a situation where they don't have everything in place. Because, yeah, for, for say, for this time next year, they plan to have a complete transfer infrastructure in place, something close to Liverpool. And along those lines, they, um, the, from what I've been told, the reports about um, strong interest in Michael Edwards, um, Liverpool's uh, very well-respected mm. director, or outgoing uh, director of football, uh, they're true. 
They've also been talking to um, the guy at Sporting Lisbon, whose name escapes me now, uh, and who, who's someone who would work alongside the manager in that regard. But for the moment, they kind of have to make do, and that has meant that Todd Bowley uh, is, has been involved in a lot of decisions. Now, some people in football have actually... There's almost been a view that they, they can potentially take advantage of Chelsea this summer because of that, and that Bowley has no experience in football, and it, it could, it, I mean, it, has, it, it could potentially be a bit of a mess this year. But what's actually happened, from what I've been told so far, is that I mean, Bowley would, he would willingly accept he, he doesn't know that much about football. But what's happened then is actually he's, he's, they're, they're using a lot of people for consultation and advice. So, so ultimately, that bowling is at least very well informed those decisions, and they're pretty, pretty insistent on not being taken for a ride in any sort of transfer. So an example of that is basically, from what I've been told, you know, M- Milan basically felt they could get Hakim Ziyech uh, for next to nothing just because Chelsea are going through changes. And because there is a bit like, uh, there's obviously this um, a degree of uncertainty with, with the changeover and how late in, in the season it happened. But Chelsea are adamant, no, if, if, if Milan won Ziyech, they're going to have to pay and pay, pay properly, which is why that deal might be in some doubt. Equally, on the other side of it, Tuchel does like Ziyech as a moments player. But Chelsea do need, they, they, they want to reshape the squad. I think they do want to raise some funds as well. There's probably about three or four players like Ziyech who, if they got the right offer, uh, they would be available for transfer. But yeah, for them, they've got, they've got pretty solid plans that come from this, I suppose what is a new model of football now, very, which is very American influence, very analytics-based but for the moment, they, they, I think they've accepted this summer is going to be a bit erratic and they have to do have a, a slightly uh, <laughs> out there approach. But we, that's we, actually we, interesting. We'll put, we put the numbers plan, we put the data-based driven model in place next summer. <laughs> this summer, let's sign Ronaldo. <laughs> what about Frankie de Jong then? Is, is that likely to happen? Yeah, from, from what I was told on Friday and I wrote this, um, United are, are basically relaxed about where they were, where they are and standing to the ground, especially given everything that, that's going on at Barcelona at the moment, where he's, he's owed 17 million in deferred wages. But I, I think while United have, they've, they've agreed a deal with Barcelona, they've agreed most of the principles, I think I, I can't see them budging from their position. So it ultimately comes down to, um, I mean, I suppose for want of a better phrase, Barca almost forcing De Jong out. Um, I'm, I mean, it, it, it keeps being put to me that will eventually happen. Personally, and just my going off my own gut feeling, I'd have it at about fifty-fifty. It doesn't feel like. I, mean, I think De Jong has accepted. Obviously, his future in Barca is in doubt. He's had Ten Hag onto him, um, but ultimately, there's just this kind of remaining reluctance to to go to United. If you're trying to build a new era, build a new era, and your marquee signing in that first summer, who the manager sees as so essential to your approach, is someone who doesn't really want to be there. I mean, I don't think it's ever worked out that well in the in the recent history of football. It's felt like there's about a week where United were linked to a new Ajax player or former Ajax player every day, and I and again, okay, yeah, fair enough. It's a degree of it's got almost a show of fate in Ten Hag in his first summer to give him exactly what he wants. But the only problem with that is, that's actually happened with every single Manchester United manager so far since Ferguson. United's approach, a recruitment approach, isn't currently guided by any sort of overall plan, independent of kind of what short-term whims or short-term guides. And now, the, again, it's something we've heard a lot about United this summer is, this is the start of a new era, similar to Chelsea, there will be changes in the future. Although we haven't seen as many direct effects of that yet. 
But it also points to this something I think that from what I've been told that the new Chelsea ownership have have so been attuned to, which is that ultimately really there's two at the top end of European football, there's sort of two major uh, transfer models. One is something relatively old fashioned, which is based on a network of agents and personal relationships. And the other is, and it's increasing, like it's increasingly American slash German influence. Where, because well, really, a lot, a lot of American owners have seen what Leipzig have done, how cost effective it's been, and tried to replicate that. And a clear example of that is actually Serie A. Eight or nine of the league's clubs are now owned by American owners. What it's actually doing in, in the kind of uh, in, in the longer term is is making Serie A a, a really high pressing league like the German league, that even some of the clubs that aren't run that way have to adapt to. Mm. And of course, you know, Atlanta have almost been the Leipzig of Serie A in that way that everyone has followed. And, and of course, you know, had a, had a similar Champions League run to, to Leipzig in, in 2020. And basically Chelsea want to do this on a higher scale uh, in England and think there's, there's actually real opportunity there because there aren't too many clubs that follow this model in England. Everyone will say they use analytics, of course, but it's it's about the extent of it and about, I suppose, how sharp some of these bodies are or how sharp some of these uh, recruitment structures are. And and for the moment, we're not we're still not really seeing that at United. And it feels like in that, from that perspective, even United have further to go than Chelsea in that regard. It's something that this summer and what's happening at Chelsea and what's happening at United could kind of prove an interesting case study going forward and how these recruitment models work. And of course, then explaining what happens on the pitch. Miguel, enjoy England against Norway tonight. Thanks for that today. Cheers, lads. Thank you. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. It's a beautiful summer's day. The breeze is stupendous. 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 Would this podcast be even more stupendous without ads? Without ads? Ads. If so, then join us for daily commercial-free shows at secondcaptains.com for just five euro a month. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not bumping them up. I'm not Irish. I'm just saying my observations, they are amazing. Stupendous. All right, that is your football podcast for today. Our Monday GA show is out now. What a show it is featuring Sean O'Shea. We have got a we have got a Sean O'Shea audio bed of his free kick to win at the death featuring some amazing commentary from RT and Radio Kerry. And Marcus, I put that on Twitter as well. Put a video to it on Twitter. So it looks... Do you put the video to the music? You probably put the music and the commentaries to the video, but it's there mm. now if you want to have a look. I'm sure K- Dublin fans won't, <laughs> but Kerry <Kelly> supporters <laughs> probably will. There's, Just watch it on yeah. repeat on. There's the All-Ireland Hurling final to look forward to during the week on the World Service. We've got Shane Horgan tomorrow with Scotty Stevenson. 
to look ahead to what could be a series win for Ireland in New Zealand. Oh my God, so much going on. Uh, you can sign up now to hear those shows on secondcaptains.com. Don't forget, all episodes of the podcast are ad-free if you become a member for a five or a month plus fat. The Second Captains podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network. Thanks for listening today. Thank you, Kieran. Thank you, On. Take care, and we'll see you soon. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. It is not war and death and famine, it's not that at all. It's the opposite of that, it's to persuade the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.